the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 330 Premium for Thursday, May 12th, 2011. <laughs> Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab Premium, the show where... Well, you know how it works. You send in the questions. You send in some tips. John and I research things. We provide the best answers we can. We also share our tips and uh, and we take it from there. We all learn something in the process here in Durham, New Hampshire. As usual, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. So. Uh, yes. Let's do Let's go right into it. This is good because we're Get down to yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're, we're hot on this topic here because we were arguing about it in pre-show. So we might as well just we're dive right in. Discussing it. We're not arguing yet. Now the argument will come. That's, that hasn't happened yet. That's right. Or the All difference right. of opinion. George, yeah. George says, George writes, Steve Gibson talked about this in Security Now podcast 297. Essentially, Dropbox puts a plain text config.db file on Windows computers and simply copying that file and putting it on another computer is all one needs to do to open Dropbox on that computer. Spotlight did not turn up a Dropbox file with exactly that name on my Mac, but there's plenty of stuff in the library folder that might be the equivalent. I also wasn't able to Google up where uh, that file might be. So here's a Mac GeekGab question. What and where is the Mac equivalent to the Windows Dropbox config.db file? And I'll, I'll throw in here uh, the second part of his question, where he says uh, Dropbox also, according to Steve Gibson, changed its terms of service to clarify that Dropbox can and will unencrypt user files ostensibly for government. But uh, as Google and the IRS have both learned to their chagrin, sometimes used by rogue employees just for the sake of curiosity. So, does this file exist on the Mac? Where is it? And then let's address this uh, security thing from from our from our standpoint, from our vantage points here, John. So uh, you take the first part. Go. The answer is yes. This file does exist, but it's cleverly hidden. Actually, I'll take that back. It's not clever at all. Oh, <laughs> that was a nice setup. I like that. Well, somewhat clever. Well, I'll tell you what they did. So I, I did the same thing. Did right. a. Uh, did a spotlight search for config.db and it didn't find the appropriate Dropbox file. I'm like, huh? Well, okay. Now, I'll stop you right there. Let's talk. Let's talk about uh, spotlight and, and just remind our listeners. Cause I know, you know, this John and most of our listeners may know this too, but it's, it's a good reminder for us all to remember that spotlight will not find system files or hidden files by default. And it can be changed uh, to, to, to look for those. But by default, it does not look everywhere on your Mac. So with that in mind, you proceeded forward, I'm sure, John. Right. So I actually did, after engaging a, a bit of Google Foo, I did find where it is and where it is. So config.db does exist. Okay. And here's how I found it. Or here's where it is. You go to the terminal. So you're not going to see this in the finder. And you're, so he's absolutely correct. You're not going to find it normally with Spotlight or you're not going to see it unless you go to the terminal. Now, here's a, here's a, an initial tip. If you, if you want to see where it is or you want to see more than 
you normally see with John, the tell us where it is. You've got us on the fence. Go. It's in dot. It's in a dot Dropbox directory. Oh. So if you go to if you go to terminal, which normally dumps you in your home directory. Yeah. And you then say CD space dot Dropbox. Now, what is this dot you ask? And most people know. But if you don't know in Unix, and that's why I'm saying it's somewhat cleverly hidden in Unix, this means make the file invisible to a normal directory scan and by extension i would say it also makes it invisible to spotlight and that it's not right. going to show you files that are in invisible or hidden i, I guess they're right. equivalent yeah yeah i think that's yeah yeah very interesting but now, if you do that and yeah. you say cd space dropbox i'm doing that right now and then you do an ls you will see oh well, look at that there's uh dropbox.db dropbox the yeah. Are you in your dot Dropbox folder, John, or just your regular Dropbox folder? Yes, and hold on. Now, now what's interesting is on this computer, I've done the same thing, and I don't have a config.db file in my dot Dropbox folder. I have a config.db.x file. And this is because Dropbox is already working to correct this problem. In fact, they have corrected it in their beta builds. Uh, and they released betas of 1.2 for the Mac and I believe equivalent betas on the on the Windows side. You can get them from their website. These are publicly available. Uh, there are some it does, of course, change the way that uh, that database works. And there are some things that will not work because of it. Most notably is one password. If you've already got one password set up to sync with Dropbox, then it's fine, even if you upgrade. But once you upgrade, you cannot reconfigure drop one uh, password to sync with Dropbox, uh, at least at the moment. Of course, the one password people and the Dropbox people are actually working together on making sure that this functionality is restored by the time version 1.2 comes out of beta. So now this is strange, Dave, because as I was looking at this and yeah, I was taken aback. Yep. Which I'm normally not. But in this case, <laughs> I was. No, I looked on my mini and on my mini. In the .dropbox directory, there is no config.db file. However, on my MacBook Pro, in the .dropbox directory, there is that file. I wonder why it's not there on your mini. That's, that's odd. Well, it's funny because now I'm highlighting, and for those that use Dropbox, if you go to the Dropbox icon in your menu bar and you hover over it, it will tell you the version of it. Okay. Now, what's even more unusual is that the version of Dropbox on my mini is 0.7.110. Oh, you haven't even gone to the one build yet. You got to do that. And the version on my machine where I found that file is 1.0.28. So I think 1.1.10 or 1.1.13 is the current build for Dropbox for Mac. And uh, and it is important, I think, to have all of your Macs, especially if you're doing local syncing on the same version of Dropbox. Otherwise, it it will work until it doesn't. And and you can run into some problems with that. So, uh, right. I mean, yeah. that's good advice. But it, and you and I talked about this before about one one three one. Sorry about that. One point one point three one. Right. Y- you know, Dropbox has auto updating because I well, have. They claim they claim exactly. you, you point you pointed me to the article. It says they'll roll them out slowly. Now, yeah. unless I, I don't know how they define slowly, but just <laughs> looking. Now, maybe point seven yeah, it didn't is have incapable right. of auto update. So that's why I'm still stuck at that version. I yep. don't have to update it on the mini. So, yeah. So you may want to move to the one, two betas. Although, you know that um, on this computer yeah. here, I was having Dropbox issues 
perhaps because of the fact that I'm running one, two betas, but, uh, but they seem to have resolved themselves. All right. So the second part of George's, uh, so, so other than moving to 1.2 for Dropbox, there is no other way to, uh, to secure that file. The second part of George's question though, about Dropbox's terms of service where they say that they can and will unencrypt user files. Now, George presumed that this was for the government. Uh, that would be one reason, you know, I, I, um, well, let's, let's talk about this a little bit, John. You have, you have some thoughts about this. Uh, lots of thoughts. Okay. Go now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, here's my assumption. So looking over the security section of their site, they say that, well, yeah, you know, your, your files are secure. They're they're uh, when they're on our servers, they are encrypted with, I don't know if they said AES 128 or 256, but they, they said that the files are encrypted with, you know, AES is one of the latest and most uh, power, powerful encryption right. schemes. Right. Now, my assumption, which I believe now, we, we, I just made an assumption because this is how I would design it, having worked on secure systems. Okay. Now, the encryption algorithm requires a key. Right. All right. An, uh, something now, to unlock it. Just like we talked about in, uh, I think, in the last show about how the key is the thing that actually gives, gives you access to your data. So, yeah, it would stand to reason you need that. Right. Now, one, now one could assume, and I think this is an incorrect assumption, that your key is maybe not your password, but at least based on your password. Without going too deep, I mean, okay. a lot so, of systems, what they do is rather than storing your password, which I believe older Unix systems actually did in a text file, which is the wrong way to do it. Right. They would take your key and put it through what's known as a hash function and actually add what they call salt, a little extra random info, so that your, your password is never stored anywhere. And if it's not stored anywhere, that, 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 that's a good thing. Well, right. What I can take away from what they're saying is that your password is not the sole key that can be used to decrypt the data on their servers or even worse, which was our pre-show discussion. They may be using a totally different value, which in my opinion is a terrible way to, to design a system to have a, or now, now are you sure it's a terrible way to design a system? I'm setting you up here. In my opinion, if you have a single key that unlocks everything yes that's bad it should be tied to the user okay so that, that if if i was designing a system where i would assure people that your data is protected by a password uh, i'd feel a lot better if the uh, i would feel a lot better if the encryption was based on data that was within my control and not there so if they're right. using a key that they came up with and only they know to encrypt and decrypt the data that makes me somewhat uncomfortable all right so this is the premium show which i don't know uh, why I feel this way. I guess we could do this in the normal show too, but, uh, but certainly in the premium show, we, we give ourselves a little bit more freedom to go deep on this stuff. Uh, and this is important. So I, I ran into a lot. I, I I'm going to, I have a specific thing about Dropbox, but I want to get there. Uh, I ran into a lot of this and thought about this a lot very recently when I was testing all those different online backup services. And I keep do meaning to uh, incorporate that into a uh, into a show here. And of course, the, we've had too many questions, but here's a little piece of that. Um, I, I think I tested five different online backup services, maybe six if you include Dropbox. Uh, but but, you know, there's Carbonite and, and Backblaze and Mosey and and all of those. And and of course, they're all doing something 
similar, including Dropbox. They're taking data that you have on your computer and sending it up to a server. We'll say we'll use the term in the cloud, but it's that's hosted and owned by someone else. And for all of them, including Dropbox, the data is encrypted at your computer and then sent up so that it is not sent in the clear. And and that's a good thing. Right. You know, you, you don't you, you don't want somebody sniffing through the packets that could get the data. So it's encrypted at your computer and sent up to Dropbox and uh, well, and stored there. I, I, I believe they're using SSL to encrypt it. So I, I, I don't know if they're encrypting it on uh, your computer. Yeah. Good but the, point. But the trans, but the transport. Right. And I believe I found that in. The, so, yeah. So the, the connection to Dropbox from your computer to their servers is SSL encrypted. So right. yeah. So somebody watching your data, but I don't believe they pre-encrypt it. That, that's a good they point. Send it. You're, I, you're, I believe they're, they're using SSL yep. to provide security on the network connection. That's right. That, and in Dropbox's case, that's, oh, that's true. what they say right here. I'm looking yeah. at their security section. So you go to Dropbox.com no, you're, security you're, and they say transfer file data is over an encrypted channel SSL. Okay, right. go. Yeah, no, you're right with Dropbox. That's true. And that's true in a, in some ways for, uh, all the others uh, out there. So your data is sent securely. And then in, in Dropbox case, it's encrypted uh, at their end and, and stored on their servers. Um, some of these though, Mosey, in fact, all of them, Mosey, Backblaze, Backjack um, and Carbonite will allow you to decide whether or not you're using the common key which would be accessible by the people at, uh, at, at Mosey if they had to, or you can generate your own key, which is John, what you just described where you're the only person on the planet that knows that key. And without it, the data is not being unencrypted. And so if you lose your key, you're dead in the water. And to be fair, every one of these pieces of software, all these online backups, if you are using Mosey or Backblaze or any of the Carbonite uh, and you have not gone and changed this by default, you are using uh, a key that is a common key that uh, any of whichever company you're, you're dealing with can use to decrypt your data. So to me, that's uh, secure by policy, but not secure by, uh, by technical reasons. But there, there, there are some good reasons. That, and they say, I talked to uh, Gleb over at Backblaze. He says about 10% of their customers choose to use their own key. Now, whether that's because they don't know any better or uh, or they've actually actively made that choice is impossible to tell. But there are some reasons why you would want to use a key like Dropbox does, right? Where it's it's one common key. Uh, obviously, if the uh, if the feds come in and want to get at your data or really anybody with a subpoena, right, wants to come in and get at your data, Dropbox has the ability to decrypt and provide that data for them. That can be a bad thing. However, uh Dropbox, like many other online backup uh, packages, uh, has an iOS app and or a web app, and you can get at your data that way. So if your computer dies, you can go to the web and pull down uh, your data. Well, all of these things that have a choice, as soon as you choose to use your own password, can't get at the stuff with the iOS app, can't get at the stuff on the web, have to go through a computer that's going to be able to download and decrypt the data locally. The other thing, and you know, Dropbox think, think about this for a second and it'll suddenly all make sense. John, you got uh, well late, but you got the agenda for today's show, correct? 
Mm-hmm. Now, I uploaded that. How did you get it? I sent it to you via our shared Dropbox folder. Mm-hmm. So I put that file into Dropbox on my computer. It went up to Dropbox's cloud and then synced back down to your computer because we have that folder set to do that. But you don't know my password and I don't know your password. So the only way that functionality could work is if that data is encrypted with a password that is common to all Dropbox accounts. You get where I'm going with this? Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I can see that. But if you were to, if we, if I was to use Dropbox with my own encryption key, which you cannot, but if, if I were, there would be no way to share that data amongst other people. Okay. So for sharing, yes, I'm, I'm with you, but for securing data that's specific to either me or you. Yep. uh, I I don't know if I'm crazy about that way of doing it. No, I, I, I gotta be honest with you. I'm not either. Um, the, the, I've been using Backblaze at my Mac um, after the test. And even during the tests for all of these, I set up my own key because I don't want my data stored on somebody else's server where they can get it. That's, you know, that's crazy. Uh, and, and maybe what they do. Now, this is another thing when I on the, on the systems that I've worked on and designed. Yep. There's a fallback and actually file vault does this too, Dave. You can design a system. So different keys. So not, uh, not a a single key is required. You uh-huh. could say, okay, maybe key A or key B. And depending on how you design the system, and we're not going to go, with, you know, if you, if you want to learn about this, then yeah, listen to Security Now or another security podcast. Yeah. But you can design a system where there's not just a single key that can unlock things. You could make it so, and actually I've worked on systems where you can have it almost like a launch code where you can say, okay, well, you need three of five pieces of information in order to do this operation. Oh, interesting. You know, kind of like with the missiles, you know, not, yeah. one, not any one person in the, uh, as far as I know from watching movies <laughs> can launch a nuclear missile. You need at least two or three or whatever people. Right. So one, one person doesn't have too much power. And that's what concerns me about a yeah. system where there's a single key. Now, on the other hand, it's worked to our advantage, you know, for people that don't like things like DVD encryption. Yep. Because what happens is once you figure out the master key that's used to encrypt or decrypt all DVD or Blu-ray content, as we've seen, then they lose. Right. Because it's the same key in every device. <laughs> so, but it's, uh, uh, but I think they, they have a combination of, yeah, policy and, and encryption technology, but it does, it does make some question. Well, you just, it's, it's good to know. And, and, you know, when I did that talk down in uh, Princeton, going through all this backup stuff, I, I, I did a slide on, on this because it, if you're going to be sending your data up, you want to know and make the choice, uh, you know, and may, you may decide, look, this is, it's worth it to me because of the convenience or I don't care or any, you know, number of those it's, it's the same conversation you always have with security. Yep. You're trading one level of, you know, you can either have high security or ultimate convenience. And then there are spots in the middle, but you will never right. have high security and ultimate convenience together. And that's now I'm going to tell you, Dave, and, and then I, I, I wrap it here. up. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to wrap it up with a final point here. And here's how you can stick it to the man. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't necessarily have to store plain data on Dropbox or any of these cloud services. Right. You can store a file or a disk image 
that has a password that yes, only you know. And in that case, all they're going to get if they're subpoenaed or whatever is an encrypted disk image or an encrypted file, in which case they would need the key that only you know. That's right. Yeah. So you can encrypt the data locally. You just have to do it manually. Right. So so there is a way if you're, if you're ultra paranoid, there is a way even if, again, even if they do get a, you know, the person who wants to peruse the so-called encrypted data, yeah, they're going to see your encrypted disk image and they won't know your password. So, right. all right. Uh, we've got uh, two questions about the menu bar. So let's, uh, let's go from the depths of the system to the top of the system. G'day, John. G'day, Dave. It's Andrew here in San Francisco. I need you to rescue me from Mac Hell. Okay, so I've got an iMac 2006, the 24-inch white one, the Core 2 Duo, 2 gigs of memory. Memory, I'm running uh, 10.6.7. Um, my problem has to do with something called system UI server. System UI server, that's all one word. And what happens is whenever I plug my iPhone or my iPad into my Mac, The whole system goes into absolute lockdown. This system UI server thingo um, goes up to taking anywhere between 80 to 90% of available memory and it just causes everything to slow right down. Now I know system UI server has something to do with data going into the menu bar um, across the top right hand corner of my Mac. Um, Up there I'm running World Clock Deluxe, Skype, uh, Dropbox, Twitter, Smart Reporter, Weather Doc, Chronosync Today, Log Me In, Evernote, um, that Pratt, uh, Stat Pro thing, uh, Time Machine, and uh, you know just the normal Apple stuff. The way I get around it is. Um, before plugging in the iPad or the iMac, um, I actually you know, just put the um, activity monitor up and as soon as I plug either in, the system UI server comes up, goes berserk, and then I kill it and everything's okay. I can continue to use my Mac. If I forget to do that, I'm in for 10 to 15 minutes of pain. Um, I've tried lots of uh, solutions and lots of reading, but I just can't seem to answer it and wondering if there's anything you can do to help. So thanks, guys. Um, here's where you cut me off. And so we shall. All right. So you are correct that the system UI server is the process that manages most of your menu bar. Uh, There are actually three sections to your menu bar. Uh, When you look at your menu bar, the easy section, of course, is the one on the left. That's what has all of your menus. And then there is the one on the right that has uh, your username and the clock and some Apple widgets and perhaps some third party widgets. And then there's one in the middle and the one in the middle uh, is not controlled by system UI server. What it contains are icons from applications that you are running. Now this seems like a subtle difference uh, between the, the middle, what I'll call and the right, especially since they're run right into each other. But Something like Dropbox, the icon that you see in your menu bar for that is not managed by system UI server. Uh, It is managed just by the application Dropbox that's running in the background all the time. Skype is that way, too. Uh, I think he mentioned Twitter. That's that's another way. Well, other than simply knowing, how could you tell which is which The, the rest of these Uh, I'm not sure about world clock, but I think smart reporter and certainly iStat menus. Those are all 
uh, add-ons to the system that are running through system UI server. So clearly you've got something in system UI server running that is, you know, spiraling out of control when it sees uh, the, uh, the iDevice connected. But the first thing is you want to know what those things are, and then you can start systematically deactivating one by one by one, but deactivating Dropbox isn't going to help, uh, nor is Skype, nor is Twitter, uh, because those icons aren't coming through system UI servers. So uh, that, that would be the, the wrong troubleshooting path. The way to tell is to go up to the icon, hold down the command key and click on it. If a menu shows up, it's coming from an application. If it starts to float and you can move it around uh, and you can actually replace it or reposition things in the bar doing this, that's coming from system UI server. So uh, you can kind of float over each one, click a little bit and drag, and you'll be able to tell which things are coming from applications and which are coming through system UI server. My guess for you, Andrew, is that it's probably your smart reporter or something else that has to do with the disc. When you plug in your iPod, uh, it the system sees it as another disc. Now, it depending on the settings that you have, it may or may not show it as a disc in the finder. The finder may hide it, but uh, but it, the system does see it as a disc. So if you've got anything running in your menu bar that's monitoring the state of the disks and Smart Reporter does that, then that may be the root of your uh, or problem. That's certainly where I would start. So that's that's my part on that, John. I, I know you uh, because we messed up with the agenda. You didn't hear the audio question until just now. So you've had some time to think while I've been chatting. Yes, Anything I have. And I, I, okay. Absolutely. Hmm. Good. So, so one thing, you, uh, I think this will be a good troubleshooting tip. So one thing that could help you identify what, if any, process may be causing this grief is you could go an activity monitor and you'll see a list of things. Like right now, I see system UI server. Right. Well, that's nice. You know what? Let me double click on that. Oh, wow. Look at that. If you double click on it, you get another window. And then within that is a number of tabs and there's open files and ports. And to reinforce what you said, Dave, all of the things that are under system UI server will be in here. And I'm looking right now very quickly and I see, for example, private frame frameworks slash iPod dot framework slash hmm. Okay. That looks suspicious. Maybe something in his system library is damaged. But there's a whole bunch of other things in here. So this will help you determine what processes are under system UI server and pieces of software that you may want to consider uh, deinstalling or deactivating or just keeping an eye on to see if they have anything to do with this problem. Yeah, I like it. That's good. All right. Uh, so hopefully that gets Andrew down the uh, down the right path there. Abdullah has a question, and this is an interesting one because. We've been through this before. In fact, this is a follow-up to Abdullah from a, uh, from a recent episode. He was the one that wrote in that said he couldn't possibly get menu meters to be removed from his, uh, from his menu bar back in show 327. And he had uninstalled menu meters, and we walked through a couple of steps and thinking maybe he had the old 32-bit version and the 64-bit. He actually heard back from, uh, from the author of menu meters. He sent in a report support request. And the author said, yeah, based on what you're showing me, menu meters isn't installed. And for whatever reason, when he shared that with me, John, that's when mm -hmm. we got, I had the inspiration because we had listener Jeff quite a while back 
that uh, that went through pretty much exactly the same thing. And Jeff wrote in Tigo, the makers of virus barrier did a recent update within the past few months. And this mysterious menu bar item popped up for some users. Yes, this is my mysterious menu bar item in preferences for virus barrier X six. Click on the traffic tab in the bottom section. There is a checkbox called display network traffic in menu bar. I unchecked that and bam, the mysterious menu bar item was gone from my menu bar. And indeed, Abdullah has since written back and uh, and confirmed that this did it for him, too. So for any of you running Intego virus barrier, be aware that it likely is putting some sort of network um, traffic monitor up there in your in your menu bar. And you can get rid of it in their uh, in their preferences and in the traffic tab. It's interesting stuff, John. I like it when we can put answer from one listener with the other and meld it all together and make everybody happier. Yeah. And while I'm thinking of it, I think little snitch will do this as well. I think if you enable it, little snitch will also put what could be confused as another program's network. monitor. Wow. That's, that's because we don't like little snitch though. Right, John? You don't like little (laughs) snitch. I love it. And it actually may apply to a question that we uh, we may cover. That's true. That's true. Uh, all right, let's go to uh, let's go to Jim and then uh, and then we've got some tips to share and then we'll probably jump back in, into some questions. But Jim writes, OK, I'm trying to help a friend out. He has a very big house. He's running an airport extreme as his base station and router. And we tried to extend his network using an airport express. No luck. The house is too big. Your recommendation was to use power line adapters and we're ready to go in that direction. I'm just not clear on how to make it happen and support a mixed environment of Windows and Mac devices. Do do I buy a wireless power line adapter or do I use a straight power line adapter and then plug a wireless router into that? I've been very remiss in solving this problem for my brother from another mother. So if you can get me going in the right direction, it would help me get this done for him. Okay. The best way to explain this, we've talked about power line before, uh, but the best way to explain it is that you treat the power line adapters no differently than you would treat an Ethernet cable from a relatively high level, you know, network topology standpoint. They are the same, assuming, of course, that they work. Uh, so for, and, and perhaps an example will will help here. You've got this big house, right? If you had your druthers, what you would do is run run one big, long Ethernet cable from the airport extreme out to wherever you want to put this airport express to extend the network some in some far corner of the house. Of course, you don't have a big, long Ethernet cable and you didn't put it in the walls. So what you do is you have power wires in the walls and with the power line adapters, you can plug in and use the power adapter or the power cables in the walls as your ethernet. And the way it works is you plug an ethernet cable from the main router into a power line adapter. The power line adapter has ethernet on one side and three pong power on the other. Then you plug uh, another power line adapter in, in the far corner of the house and you plug an ethernet adapter into that and run that to your remote base station. It's as, and the base stations will have no idea that they are not directly connected with one ethernet cable. Does that make sense, John? Did I explain that right? I think so. 
So what you're trying to say is that the, so I think all of these power line adapters yeah. will have, yeah, have an ethernet connector. That's right. Okay. That's right. So it's a big virtual long. So, so at some point you're just, some of the cabling isn't ethernet, but the network doesn't need, nor does it care. That it doesn't know, nor does it care. That's right. Because yep. these devices don't get IP addresses, do they? No, they I mean, do not. They're, they're just trans. Okay. So they're operating at a very low yes. physical level it's just the transport is uh or the the technology or the medium is different but right. yeah they appear as a single big long cable yeah you know totally. the the way to describe this and and this is wrong but it, implementation wise it it is it, it works is let's say you go out and you buy a switch right that has four four plugs in it right you know a hub hub is what we used to buy a switch is what we would buy now and it's got four ethernet plugs and you can plug four computers into those or four devices, they don't all have to be computers, and everything plugged in sees everything else that's plugged in. Why? Because the switch has some wiring inside it that makes that work. Power lines, the same thing. If you go get four power line adapters and plug them in in different spots in your house, and then now you've got four Ethernet ports. So you plug four devices in, could be computers, could be not. All four of those devices will see each other. Why? Because there's some wiring behind the power line adapters. Different wiring than is in a switch, but it doesn't matter. The computers don't see it that way. So that's my second example. I think that's enough, right? I'm with Good. you. I'm going right. to have to try one of these one day. Oh, it's awesome. It makes so much. It makes such a big difference. Well, the only, you know, the only device, and this is why I'd like to do it, Dave, is the only device that I have in my house right now that is, uh, could be wired, but is not, is the TiVo. Right. So all my network stuff is upstairs and the TiVo is downstairs. And right now I have a G adapter wireless G and the only bummer about that is that it drags down. It doesn't let me operate my time capsule or, or uh, at full capability because it, it, it can't do all N I have to do G. What I would like to do is instead plug into the ethernet adapter on the TiVo and then make it a hardwired, essentially a hardwired device. And then I could ditch the wireless adapter and probably get better throughput I don't know if the TiVo has 100 base T or gigabit. I assume 100 base T probably, but still it's better than the G adapter. So I'm thinking of doing that one day because then I can change the configuration of my wireless thing because it's the only G device. Everybody else is in. Right. So you could go five gigahertz if you wanted on your wireless once you, uh, well, once you get does, rid of that. Does the I, but the iPhone doesn't support. Oh, gigahertz. that's right. The that's iPhone it. only supports N at 2.4 gigahertz. That's right. The iPad, that'll do five. Yeah, I don't want one of those. Well, it's still, I'm you still, still need resisting. to get your iPhone online. So, <laughs> but I could eliminate G devices by by doing that. So at least everybody could run N if I if I kick the TiVo off and made it power line adapter. So that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's good. All right. Uh, Wes has a great little tip for us. Wes writes, guys, be aware that the Tinker Tool app provides a GUI interface which allows one to easily rearrange the order of the login items for the active account. It's so good, in fact, Apple should steal it. So that uh, that speaks back to our conversation about uh, the hokey pokey you have to do if you want to rearrange the login items order using Apple's uh, system preference pane. But, uh, but Tinker Tool... <laughs> And there's something else out there. Somebody else wrote in with something else, right, John? Or, or was it you that told me about there's there's something else too that'll do it? Uh, I know I know Tinker Tool will uh, obviously. Thanks, Wes. But uh, 
I think there was something else. Onyx might even be able to do it. But don't quote me on that. I know there's one. I just say you man up and you just get in that login items, that P list file, and just manually rearrange them. You have fun with that. The rest of you, Tinker Tool. <laughs> or woman up. Man up or woman up. There you go. We're, we're, we're uh, equal opportunity here. So <laughs> you're just digging yourself deeper. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm going to uh, get fist shakes from, from both e- sides. From everybody now. That's right. <laughs> shake your fists at John. And if you wanted to shake your fist at John, you could email us at feedback. No, at premium at MacGeekGab.com. No, no, no. Well, if you want to shake your fist at Dave, <laughs> then you would write to premium at MacGeekGab.com. Or if you need to shake your fist at both of us, it's premium at MacGeekGab.com. Of course, you can always call 206-666-GEEK, which John is 4335. You can find us on Facebook now, facebook.com oh slash MacGeekGab. Right. Yes. That was amazing. Yeah. We, we just staked our claim to that. So thanks to everybody who saw that and just, uh, cause yeah, you, you have to, I guess you got to prove to them that there are enough people interested in your, right. Right. Whatever you have to say. And, uh, obviously we, I I think, I think our premium listeners are proof positive of that. Uh, but as is everybody else. I mean, it really, it, uh, we do appreciate your support. It's, it's fantastic. So thank you. Uh, you can write on our wall. You can we write will it. permit you in just one case to <laughs> write on. Oh. That's right. Uh, Jeff shares something that actually is is timely uh, and good. So he found an article on Daring Firewall. I guess it, it turns out that it was Marco Arment, who is the author of Instapaper, uh, said you should encrypt your backups, if not for security. And he's talking about your iOS backups. So. When you connect your iPod up, assuming a system UI server doesn't spin out of control, a la Andrew, <laughs> uh, you can plug it in. And then when you click on it in iTunes, the first page you get is an info page. And there's a bunch of checkboxes, I think five or six of them at the bottom. One of them uh, is encrypt backups of this device. Uh, and Marco Armit says, you should encrypt your backups, if not only for security reasons, but for a big convenience game. Encrypted backups will include your email and mobile me passwords, so you never need to re-enter them after a restore. I, this is huge because this is reason enough to encrypt your iOS backups, uh, especially if you wind up going from one iOS device to another. It's great to be able to restore a backup from your old iPhone to your new iPhone or or, or even to the same device, of course, and not then get stuck, you know, two hours later saying, oh, yeah, I, I, I need my email password for receiving mail. And then an hour after that, oh, I need my password for sending mail and, you know, all that stuff. And then you find out mobile me is not syncing. Why? Well, there's no password. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's very cool. And I'm glad I don't know how Marco figured that out. If by if it was by trial and error, that's great. If it was another uh, method, that's that's even better because we like all that good stuff. So maybe Marco will tell us how we figured it out. Yeah. And we'll of course the guards you. again, against that temporary issue they had where, where there was location data being stored in that. You, you, yeah, yeah, that's right. And of course, John giving a nod to the uh, latest IS, iOS four, three, three and four to eight updates that secure the data files that track your location or thereabouts. Oh, don't even you start. Say, no, they you, don't. No, I know track. they don't. But they track yeah, pretty well, darn close to your location. It's cache data to make your user location experience more pleasant. 
you're, but still you're yeah they, there was some interesting stuff that came out at that hearing I, I was one of the people here at tmo who was watching and doing some of the live updates of the senate hearing where senator al franken uh convened a bunch of people including uh, apple's bud tribble asking them about all of this stuff and uh poor bud he's a nice guy he actually sat in with us uh, with the all-star band and played keyboards for uh, yeah, for uh, back in the ussr that's right a number of years ago nice guy but uh you know he's got to do his job so and they had some consultants there too and and some of these people were saying you know it apple's statement is great uh it sounds like you know apple basically you just echoed what what apple has said that look this is not data about this particular user it's cache data and this that and the other thing well it tracks where you've been and saves it uh, it tracks which of those it has seen uh, and saves it based on uh, to, to make it faster to locate yeah. you with GPS. Right. If you were to use just the one GPS radio or receiver in the iPhone, it might take two or three minutes to get your GPS fix. But yeah. but by using this cache data and what it does is it caches your. Uh, a, a group of known Wi-Fi hotspots and cell towers in your vicinity and remembers which of those it has seen most recently. And then when it's, when an app says, give me your location, it can get pretty good with just that. And it also turns on the GPS. And when that kicks in it, you know, it, it gets you a perhaps better location. But this one guy was saying that, you know, unless you're talking about being out in rural, you know, nowhere, uh, the non GPS version of, of that location is usually within a hundred feet of where you've actually been. And because it's remembering all the cell towers and flagging all the cell towers and Wi-Fi hotspots that you've seen, it's what Apple was storing was not intentionally your location, but made a pretty good path of, of where you were within about a hundred feet. So. Yeah. Uh, I got to say the, the other day when I was in Manhattan and yeah. I needed to get my bearings, yeah. this was frighteningly accurate. Oh, it's and awesome. It, it, and the thing is, in that case, 100 feet is not sufficient. Right. right. Well, you know? I mean, I needed yeah. to know I was on Fifth Avenue and not Sixth Avenue or right. 42nd or 40, right. whatever street. No, it got me. And as I started walking, it started uh, the, sometimes I would see it, I think, doing its thing. Yep. Is it would start moving in one direction and then maybe do a little correction yep. and then get more accurate because no doubt it was it was grabbing both the Wi-Fi and the GPS data. Yep. So, uh, no, I think it's a great thing. Oh, it's uh, great. Yeah, it's great. But it is to good me if they, there's they've got to me if there's it. any issue and, and the, then we'll get back to the show here. But yep. would be uh, apparently some law enforcement and communication companies will uh, kind of play fast and loose with uh, allowing them to track people using their device that, right. to me that's more of a concern than this uh i think manufactured right. problem right it doesn't exist right all right uh rick writes i have installed a method back to the uh, menu bar and transitioning to memory i have installed a method to monitor among other things the memory usage on my mac when i boot up the level is about 40 percent used as i use my mac this goes up to about 80 percent used I've purchased more memory going from six gigs to 14 gigs. My question is if I stop all my applications and try to get back to my boot up condition, this number does not go down very much. I monitor the top user of memory, but there is no clear hogger of memory. Any thoughts on what's going on? 
I know something about how Unix works and about virtual memory, but this does still not explain what I'm seeing. All right. Let me, let me ask you this, Dave. It's yeah, kind of ahead. a setup here. Yeah, or, or yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Go. Which I think will frame the problem. But the thing is, Mac OS X, and, and I assume the utility that was being used to view this, reports four different types of memory. And I think that's where the problem lies, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. And then I'm looking here. So activity monitor, system memory will show free, wired, active, and inactive. Right. And I think that's part of it. Just the setup is that this is how OS X through activity monitor classifies the different types of memory. And I think that may be where some of the confusion lies. That's right. And, and I'll hand it, hand it to you because I think you, you're, you're going to nail this. Yeah. So he, he's looking at free memory, uh, which is anything that's not wired, active or inactive in. Well, uh, th- what, what you're seeing, Rick, is perfectly normal. And in most cases, a good thing. The reason is. As you load apps, of course, the data required to make that app run is loaded from the hard drive and the program files and all that stuff into memory. When you quit an app, uh, certain things that are in memory are immediately, you know, made free and purged. In other words, emptied out, marked as free. But some will remain in the system's cache as inactive. Uh, And that's what that inactive session or a segment is called, or that's what that is. This is data uh, that might be used again, either by that same app, if you were to relaunch it, or perhaps by other apps, uh, depending on what frameworks and stuff it was. And so the system says, hey, if we don't need this memory for anything else, there's no reason to free it. Why don't we just leave what's here, there? We'll mark it. We know exactly what it is. And if something else or that same app asks for that again, hey, we don't have to load it from the disk. We're good to go. We've got it in RAM. We're ready to go. It's totally addressable. Perfect. And so that's what that inactive needs. Uh, inactive means. Uh, that said, if you launch something else and it needed that space, the system says, well, this is inactive. We can. It's the first thing that's going to go. And uh, and so that's that's what's happening. There's. There's it, it would be the system hogging up RAM, if you will, but but only in a way that it's it's supposed to. Now, when you have a bunch of apps running, the, the one thing to remember is that free memory should never be below about 50 megabytes. If you see it dip below 50 megabytes, that's a good indicator. And there are others. But to me, that's a good indicator that, yeah, you've got. More running than your system would normally be happy running. Uh, and if you do that regularly, well, then maybe you should add more RAM. So that's uh, but but what you're seeing there is normal. You know, if free gets down to, you know, even even 200 or 100. You're all right. If it starts dipping down much below 50. Again, that's an indicator that you're probably overusing your RAM. So, And the system will deal with it. It just might get a little slower. And the way the system deals with it to wrap this up, I think. And and here's my my key that something's uh, that you need more RAM, Dave. Yeah, is when you see page outs, right, starting to increase or swap. Right. Though the swap, I think, is normal if you're starting to push the limits. I think swap is okay. Some level of it, but not gigabytes and gigabytes worth. No, no, that's bad. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm looking and I have zero on both. But but when you start seeing page outs, that means the system is starting to 
write things to disk to make up for what it sees as a lack of, of free memory. And, and this can all be found. Uh, iStat menu, which uh, sits in your menu bar, will show you this data, but it can all be found in Activity Monitor at the bottom. If you click on System Memory, it'll show you the four different types of memory uh, that uh, and how much of each is used. And then it'll also show you some stuff about virtual memory and page outs is one of those. And and yeah, you want to you want to watch that. If that number is high or or increasing, you've got a problem. Uh, it, you don't have a problem. You just have too much RAM being used. <laughs> Which I think you right. make it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You'll make it. And, and, you know, a handy tip here, which is not always obvious to all Mac users, but if you're not using an app, quit it. Because if you don't quit it, it's using memory. And the more apps that are using memory, the the bigger chance you're going to have of starting to swap or page out. So yep. it's yep. something I try to do. I don't always do, you know, keep your eye on your dock or, yeah. but it's something to keep in mind is yeah, the, 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 yeah, the less apps you have running, the better. Yeah. Or apps with documents, you know, if you're not working on it anymore, you know, quit it. Yep, that's right. All right. All right. Uh, you think we can do Greg? We've got two from, like Greg. from Greg. So let's, let's no, we'll do like both the first of them. Oh. Yeah, well, we'll do both of them. So uh, Greg writes, my virus barrier program has a program in it that does the same thing as Little Snitch, which is called anti-spyware. When I launched Yahoo Messenger, an image came up asking me something that John didn't share with Dave. Uh, what did it ask, John? What? When he says when he launched Yahoo Messenger, a screenshot came up. But oh, it wasn't the original. Uh, so it's very similar to what comes up in Little Snitch. So okay. it's a dialogue. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to, uh, because I have a photograph. No, I don't. But it's a dialogue that says, this process is trying to get to this IP address. Okay. So similar to Little Snitch, it's an, uh, something that's sitting there monitoring network activity of applications and warning you when it sees something that falls outside of some parameters that either you or the application has set. What Greg asks is, should I allow this behavior? And, well, let's get specific. So what okay. happened is it said the process, KSURL, is trying to go to IP address whatever the IP address was. Right. And this is something, and this is why I like, though I, I know you, you, you're not a, a little snitch fan, but I am because especially after installing a software update, sometimes I will notice new processes come up. Now, sometimes it's fun because it may give you a hint as to new things that Apple or other vendors are trying to do over the network. Like for example, after the app store, I noticed that there were some new processes that were doing app store type things. So for the most part, I'm disappointed with the App Store because, boy, it takes forever to start up and do updates. But to get to the topic at hand, so what is KSURL? I'm going to tell you what KSURL is. And I sent him a link to it. KSURL is a piece of software from the Google folks, and it is an update engine. I don't know why it's called KSURL. doesn't really flow too well, but that's what it is. And I sent him a link to a web page that shows... But it is. So that expl that's number one. So this is a piece of software that will go out, phone home, and say, hey, is there a newer version of whatever software I'm trying to update? Then the second part, and this was the one that I, I thought was kind of fun, is that he gave an IP address. How do you know who an IP address belongs to, Dave? Well, there are two things you could do. So number one, he gave me the IP address, and I said, well, 
you know, let's do, now I'm going to be old school here. This is going to show, uh, you know, how long I've been doing this sort of thing. But I thought, well, let's do an NS lookup. Okay. Of course, that's the old school way of, uh, but NS lookup, given an IP address, should come up with a name, or given a name, should come up with an IP address, right? Well, it will come up with its reverse DNS entry, which is, which may or may not even be set. It's not a rule that those have to be set. Uh, It'll come up with something, uh, perhaps. It, it, it'll come up with its reverse DNS, which is not necessarily the person who owns it, but could be. Yeah. So to me, it, it, it's a it's a good first shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you did like, an NS lookup on the IP address for MacObserver.com, you'd get Mac. Well, you'd get a you know machine.backbeatmedia.com as its uh, as its reverse. But that is not Backbeat Media does not own that IP address. We lease it from our host and our host is listed as the owner. So to find the owner, you. There is a service and this is one of the ones that I like. Yep. And it's called RN. And that is, I believe, American Registry of Internet Numbers dot net. Yep. And if you go to them and you punch in an IP address, it will come back with the people that own the IP address. So this is a good way, especially, and I find this also good if you get email from a weird source and you can uh, punch in either the name or the number, this will tell you where the heck they are. And you may find out that it's somebody halfway across the world that is trying to fake you out. But this IP address that he gave, which was a 173.194.whatever.whatever IP address, came back to well, not a big surprise. Google, because the KS URL tool is also from Google. Ah, uh, so it's some Google software trying to update itself. Exactly. Okay. And, and he wrote back to us and said, "Thank you for this information." This and and I think what he did is he then allowed it to enable, and sure enough, it was uh, what Chrome. Oh, yep. Being a piece of Google software, this is the mechanism that they use. Now, I don't know if it's sneaky, like some of the things we talked about in the past, where it kind of does it without your permission. Right, right. But he blocked it, and then I think he unblocked it, because what was happening is when he was trying to update Chrome, Chrome would say, server unavailable. And he's like, why doesn't this work? Well, it doesn't work because you blocked it. <laughs> so, so uh, dude, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you another way, right? Because you went old school on me, right? You, you went to uh, the first thing you did was NS lookup to find out the reverse DNS. Well, I, I know there's another command for that and that, that may be what you're going to tell me about. It right? is. That's right. So you do it. You go to the terminal, you do NS lookup space and the IP address and it'll do exactly what, what John described. Uh, instead of going to Aaron's website at Aaron.net, A-R-I-N.net, uh, you can simply type who is, and that's really what you're getting from ARA. And in fact, when you do a who is W H O I S space, and then the IP address, uh, it will give you all the same information, and in most cases, it's actually going to get that from Aaron, uh, but it'll spit it right out on the terminal, and Whois is a core part of Mac OS X, so it's installed on every machine you have. In fact, I think I think Whois even exists on the iPhone. Uh, you just need to be jailbroken to, uh, you know, to be uh, able yeah. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So... That's what I do when I see an IP address. I just who is the address and nine times out of 10. And, and then that way you actually get the owner of the address, mm-hmm. not somebody that's, you know, perhaps leased it or or whatever. You know, it's funny, though. So just for yucks here. So I did a quick who is from the command line on my mini. Yep. 
And and here, so I think they're linked together, but I still think RN is a good authoritative source, and, and they have a lot of other things there. Yep. But so I looked up an IP address that I know belongs to GTE because I used to uh, manage uh, a network that used GTE, and one one thing I know is that one of their name services at 4.2.2.1. So I did a who is on that, but the funny thing is that part of the record that's returned by the command says ref colon HTTP colon slash slash who is dot RN dot net. Right. That's right. So I think RN is where a lot of people go at some level to get this information and then listed all, all the other stuff. But no, you bring up a good point that, yeah, it basically does boil down to a who is command. Right. Yeah. Which is good stuff. So I think he said, I forgot the conclusion. I think the conclusion was that, you know, he, he preferred to uh, update it manually or just at least now he knows what gate he's controlling and what it's doing. So, so that's, that's good news. All right. Uh, and then Greg had another question. He said, with my iPhone four, I have one work and several personal emails. Every time I send an email from the personal account, it adds my work signature. I have to erase it every time I send a personal email. My guess is that you will say no and move on to the next question. Can I have individual signatures for each of my accounts? And the answer is no, unless you're willing to jailbreak your iPhone. And then you can buy mail enhancer from the Cedia store. I think it's uh, it's about a dollar ninety nine. It's not it's not all that expensive, and it lets you do all this stuff, and it'll even do it automated. So that as you choose email addresses, it changes your signatures and uh, and all that. It it's yet another one of those reasons that uh, that you might want to jailbreak your iPhone. And, you know, in fact, I didn't even think about this, John, but. One of the guys at Backbeat Media yesterday asked me, you know, what's the benefits to jailbreaking? And so I, I listed five apps that I find are, and this will, this will transition us perfectly into cool stuff found, but I five apps that perform things that I desperately would miss if I did not have a jailbroken iPhone. Number one is an app called Xpander. And I've talked about that before. It's like text expander system wide on your iPhone, right? So you don't, uh, you're not limited just to the apps that have integrated text expander explicitly, but I can use it in mail. And that's awesome. Uh, there is one called uh, phone GV extension. And, uh, and this lets you use Google voice for anything that you would normally use the phone. So, you know, when you tap on a number on in Safari and it pops up call, well, you get another option that lets you choose to use your Google voice number. So that's pretty cool. Uh, T-Alert. For SMS messages, lets you float your SMS messages over the top of any app so you don't have to switch to uh, the messages app to just reply quick or even mark a message red. These will just float right in over the top of whatever you're doing. And of course, you can figure it. Um, and uh, IntelliScreen is the last one. Put lets me put my mail, calendar, uh, and the weather all on my lock screen so I don't even have to mess around with... Uh, with, you know, going in and going to each app, it's just all right there floating on top of my lock screen. I don't even have to unlock the phone if I don't want. So, so those are my five, including mail enhancer. So it's good stuff. I think you should jailbreak your iPhone, John. Nope. There are re- right. Why is it not right? I trust Apple has made the right decision in choosing what functionality is put in my iPhone. <laughs> what have you done with the John Braun I used to know? 
The thing is, it concerns me because I don't want to screw it up. Because it, it's your phone. No, I, I get that. Yeah, well, yeah. it's my phone, but also... All right, so so I know these people are coming out with these jailbreaks. Yes. And I guess they're breaking some sort of encryption or whatever, but... Now, really what yeah. they're doing is they're just making it so that the iPhone can run unsigned apps. Oh, all right. That's all that it's doing. You, you know, we've talked uh, about this are, on the Mac. Are, right? are, are you sure? No. No, I'm not sure because I'm not doing the jailbreak myself. I'm I'm running Red Snow, which is one of the. Uh, All know, right, uh, but no, this is a, this is yeah. a good. But it's a good question, question, I think, because what's happening is you're you're changing something on the iPhone, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Whether yeah, it changes firm, the boot. Is, is it okay? So, so you may be introducing new firmware, perhaps? No, it, it's the same firmware. I mean, I'm r- now running 4.3.3 from Apple, but but there is a change that the jailbreak makes to the boot process so that it can modify whatever bit it needs to modify so the iPhone lets it show and, and run okay. unsigned apps. All right. I guess my only concern is that you are introducing software whose origin or intent may not be entirely clear to you. That's true. Yeah. I, oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. Potentially any jailbreak software could be doing in addition. And boy, this would be a great little social engineering thing. In addition right. to giving you something useful, maybe doing something sneaky without your knowledge. That's right. So no, it's true. They, they, the, the reason I trust it is because um, I, I'm trusting it. it it's like, you know, mass vaccine vaccination, right? Their, their source code is freely available. And you can, you know, enough people have looked at it that it couldn't possibly be a conspiracy big enough to uh, to rope in everyone that's been willing to to look at the code. So I assume since no news has come out that that there's some nefarious purpose behind it. I'm I'm good. Next thing you're going to tell me is that Facebook wasn't a CIA plot to get people to reveal (laughs) things about themselves where they didn't even need to break any laws because people are doing it willingly. And you know, that's a yeah. nice uh, urban legend about. I'm, I'm convinced that Facebook's a CIA plot. Okay, good. All right. Yeah. We're on the same page. That's right. <laughs> and <laughs> aliens will leave that for the next podcast. If you hear, but. yeah, if you hear some crinkling, it's just my tinfoil hat. Don't worry. Everything's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have not been corrupted. Okay. Uh, but as of yet, I've not found a need. I'm, I'm at this point, uh, although a cheapskate because I haven't really purchased many apps. I'm, I'm, yep. At this point, happy with the functionality that I get with the apps that I have. And I'll have to create a list myself. I, I was unprepared. Oh, that's all right. I, I wasn't really I, thinking that this, you know, this wasn't in the in the agenda, but you know, it came up. Uh, what is in the agenda is a couple of cool things found in the cool stuff found category. Allison, that being Allison Sheridan from the uh, NoZillaCast podcast at podfeet.com. Uh, she says... I've heard you talking about the merits of Omni Disk Sweeper being free, but how you like the graphical interface of Space Gremlin, but it's five bucks. Have you ever played with Disk Inventory 10 from D-E-R-L-I-E-N.com? Graphical and free. It even makes a poof noise in animation, animation when you delete from the graphical view. But then again, I like it so much, I think I donated 20 bucks. It's not as fast as Omni Disk Sweeper, so I use that when I'm in a hurry. Cool. All right, Disk Inventory X or Disk Inventory 10, I guess, is probably how they prefer to call it. But good stuff. Uh, I would say 10. Yeah. I, I, I've resisted the urge to correct people to call it Mac OS X. Right. Right. You know, I've gotten over that, but uh, I, I think it's 10, I think, is the proper 
accepted pronunciation. Yeah. Though if you're in X files or X rated or whatever, you may want to say X, but yeah, it is. No, it's good. I checked it out. It's a, I mean, the graphical is, is I I like, yeah, Yeah, it's good. No, it, it, it makes a difference. That's right. Uh, so Ed suggested um, uh, something that I'm surprised we haven't mentioned uh, over the, over the years, a tool called geek tool. Uh, and what this does, it's an interesting little thing. It, it allows you to do a lot of things, but the big one is you can, you can show things on your desktop on your Mac and you can have terminal sessions open on your desktop. You can have your calendar show on your desktop. This is stuff that just sort of floats uh, in the background on your, uh, on your Mac. It, it's really, I, I, I've, I've known people that have used it uh, quite extensively. And in fact, we'll put a, a link in the uh, show notes that shows a screenshot of uh, oh, yeah. uh, actually it'll show a library of screenshots. Cause you know, there's, you can do things like you can actually pull up little web clippings. So if you have, you know, network monitors or whatever that are running or things that you watch on a regular basis, you can actually set those to pop up and just be part of your desktop. But it's a very live thing. If you want to see your console log constantly rolling by, uh, you can have that on your desktop, you know, battery status, calendar, and all kinds of stuff. It's so configurable. It's hard to explain, but the screenshots do a pretty darn good job of, uh, I'm looking at the page. Oh my, I think I'd be too distracted by all the eye candy. Well, that's, you know, a lot of it looks really nice. That's kind of the thing is there's uh, yeah, it's just more data that is constantly pumping at you. Exactly. Oh, you and I already have this problem. Uh, yeah, I don't, right. I don't need any more distractions. Thank you. That's right. And Twitter and Skype and email and the iPhone and the, right. yeah. Exactly. And now Facebook. I mean, yeah, there's just, uh, yeah. yeah. What's one more? Uh, just, just totally overload you. Uh, <laughs> that's right. All right. Uh, and lastly, Nick writes, uh, a great solution for easily opening links in new tabs using MacBook trackpads or the magic pad is middle click by Clem at Clement.beth. Well, we'll put an ink in the, uh, uh, an ink. We'll ink. put a link in the show notes. Uh, you can open a link in a new tab with a three finger tap or click uh, might be a great solution for the oh. person with that question way back in show 310 or simply a cool stuff found item. Indeed. I believe it's free. And uh, it's cool. You know, it, it does exactly what he says. It allows you to uh, to add yet that little bit of functionality. So thanks very much. Much, Nick. That's awesome. You got anything else, John, before we. Uh, before we wrap this one up, you know, I think I do. Oh, let me push the band know. out the window. Go. Yeah, go. No, let me, let me find it here because it was from one of our, uh, I believe premium listeners, but let me see if I can find it. Oh, John's calling an audible folks. What's that? You're calling an audible. I don't know. I don't know where you're going. It's good. Just go. Did you find it? Mm. Uh, hold on, I'm scrolling down here. System, system. Nah. John F. Braun, ladies and gentlemen, right there, Fairfield, Connecticut. For no, what I was pleasure. gonna, what I was gonna find here, but I couldn't find it. No, it was brought up to me by one of the one of the folks that I, yeah, uh, interact with on Twitter. But it was a place where it stores all of the system icons, and it's in Core Services. And I'm just a. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, maybe it was Core. T- yeah, I'll have more info later. But no, he. Uh, 
or I'll tweet it or heck, I'll put it on the Facebook page, you know. But no, it was a place because he he was posing a question. And I said, well, can you be more specific? And he's like, no, I found it. It's a, uh, it's in this specific location, and it's basically the place in and and actually, well, just a little tip here, but system library core services is a lot of stuff that makes Mac OS X so wonderful. And one of the things in here is a collection of icons. I think it's um, uh, system library core services. Is it in core types dot bundle? And then you go into show package contents. Maybe that was it. And then contents. No, it was, uh, I think it was a regular. No, I think you're right. Okay. Yes. And then you look in resources and within that is a whole bunch of dot ICNS files. And I believe that is the source of many of the, well, that that's where you get the system icons. So cool. If you're looking for those, uh, so, yeah, for some gotta, reason or they get corrupted, then yeah, I guess this is, this would be a place to look to, uh, to grab them. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So that's, if you, uh, click on your hard drive and then go to system and then library and then core services. And then that's going to bring up a pretty, pretty big, long list, right click or control click on core types dot bundle. And choose show package contents. Um, and then in there, you'll find a contents folder. Open that up. And then a resources folder. And this is where you will find uh, 250 plus icon files. And if you just tap it with your mouse and hit the space bar, uh, you can do the quick look preview of them all. And oh, there's PowerBook icons. This is awesome. This is where all of the... Uh but but if you double click, Dave, then that will open. It should default to opening it in preview. Oh, it which does. Which will show you all of yeah. the individual. Because an icon file is, is is somewhat complex in that it's not just one. It's multiple resolutions depending on what you're doing. So it has super huge, I think, 128 by 128 or 256. Or little yeah. tiny ones depending on, on There's where you are. There's 512 by 512s. So. Some of them in here. So if you ever wondered, and yeah, I mean, I'm looking here, and actually they got some sp- pretty specific. Oh, yeah. Like here I see com.apple.imac-g4-7. So it has icons that are frighteningly specific for the type of computer that the Mac yeah. thinks it's connected to and stuff like that. I even see PowerBook, Power Mac G5. Look at that. <laughs> wow. So I thought that was so cool that, that he pointed this out to me. So yeah, when you, when you see those icons, you're like, wow, that's really specific. This is why. So huh. just one of those. Hey, it doesn't touches. have the uh, Power Mac G3 in here. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> it does have the, the mirror drive door G4, though, which is interesting because Snow Leopard won't run on a mirror drive door G4 or any non-Intel processor Mac. But very interesting. Huh. That's good stuff. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you brought that up. That's fun. But as you point out, I'm looking here. Yeah, it's 265. Entries. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty. Con- so somebody is hard at work making all these cool-looking icons for that's us. Good. Well, you know, that's Apple going the extra mile for you, John. Yes, they do. So we already talked about how to reach us, Dave, at uh, premium at MackieGab.com. So I'm not going to mention it again. No, I think we're. Uh, I think we're good. We can thank Michael Johnston for uh, converting this show, and uh, I was going to say all. Certainly, very, very close to all of our episodes to AAC for you. Cashfly, of course, provides the bandwidth. You want to tell them how to find us? You mentioned Twitter, John. So if you go to twitter.com slash John F. Braun, you'll find John F. Braun. Slash Dave Hamilton is me. Slash Mac Geek Gab. 
is the show. We answer questions there sometimes, too, so it's a fine way to interact with us. Slash Mac yep. Observer is, of course, Mac Observer. And uh, the man down in Memphis himself, Pilot Pete, is, of course, Slash Pilot Pete. Oh, he's in Memphis? Yeah, that's where his office is. So he's down there a bunch. No. Yeah. Okay. But he says he's going to be here on Monday. What else are we talking about? Uh, I haven't mentioned it for uh, iTunes comments. We, we love always love. Yeah. All right, that's uh, let's let's keep, let's keep moving. We'll be back on Monday with show three thirty one because that's how we roll. We add one. <laughs> that's it. That's what we do. We add one. What do you guys do in your podcast? Uh, we add one. It's pretty good. One time we thought about adding two, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we didn't want to get caught.